the truth of your word. And so, Father, we hunger and thirst for better understanding so that we might align our wills with your will and that we can find ourselves, Father, walking in your path and saying and doing those things and meditating on those things that please you and like Christ who, who did everything to please you, that we would be conformed to Christ and everything that we do, say, think, will be conforming to the mind of Christ and, and pleasing to you. Father, we are continuing to call out to you uh, thanking you, God, for your mercy for our sister Lisa. Uh, we thank you for every news of progress uh, in her condition. Uh, we thank you for your mercy. We know, Father, that she's in a very grave situation, very precarious situation. Uh, we know also, Father, that she's in your hands. And so we thank you for this understanding. We thank you for as, as great as you are, that you are a personal God who responds to prayer. So all the prayers that are going up for our sister, and we thank you, God, in advance for your mercy. We praise you, Lord. We ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned we're up to Isaiah chapter 27. Uh, God willing, we'll cover that tonight. And then we'll take a break uh, for the month of August. We'll resume then, God willing, with chapter 28 in September. So chapter 27 actually closes off a section. So it's a nice place for us to go ahead and uh, take a pause. Um, it's a short chapter, so we'll get through it fairly quickly, and then we'll have an opportunity for some Q&A. So while I'm going through this chapter, if you do have questions, please go ahead and type those in the chat. And I did say I would just check to make sure. Audio is breaking up. Audio is good now. Okay, thank you. Perfect. So yeah, I just was on the wrong um, network, and I think that caused the... Uh, the delay and the breaking up, so we should be in good shape now. Let's get into uh, chapter 27 of Isaiah. And here we will go ahead and read uh, the verse we actually covered last week, verse 1. In that day, so this is uh, clearly eschatological, this has to do with the end time. So, so we're seeing here how even though the scroll opens with an incredible condemnation, of Judah and Jerusalem. That's not the whole story. That's a very big part of the story. But ultimately, God is in covenant with Jerusalem, with Judah, and he will be their savior. He'll be the savior of Israel. And so this is now uh, Isaiah 20, 25, 26, 27. We're seeing this very clearly. He says this. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword. Now this is decisive. He's coming to do battle and to do so decisively. So he has a sore, a great and a strong sword. And with that sore and great and strong sword, he shall punish Leviathan. Who is Leviathan? The piercing serpent. Even Leviathan that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So Leviathan is identified as the piercing serpent. He's identified as the crooked serpent, and he's identified as the dragon that is in the sea. I think very clearly we know this is speaking of Satan. So Christ is coming to have a decisive victory over Satan. We live in Satan's world. He has his puppets and henchmen, and, uh, and, and he has his way. But that's not for long. Uh, Christ is coming to bring an end to it. So Leviathan was this sea monster, this sea creature. There are a lot of legends and myths around that. But symbolically, it has to do with Satan. And Christ is coming to destroy this dragon that is in the sea. Now that in the sea should bring us to Revelation 13. That's in the archives. If you missed it, we did go line by line through the book of Revelation. And in chapter 13 and verse 1, uh, John says, And I stood upon the stand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. So this beast comes out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and we uh, exegeted this in, in the um, study on Revelation, so that's in the archive. But I just want to point that this beast comes out of the sea, and upon his, horn ten, ten, his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Verse 4, 
and they worshiped the dragon. So this is the dragon now, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? So humanity at this time cannot see beyond the beast. Who's able to make war with him? He's so powerful. They've decided to all bow down and to acquiesce and to submit to this force. In verse 11, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So these two beasts, one from the sea, one from the earth, both of them are being empowered by Satan. And so when we read now that God is going to take his strong and, 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 and um, great sword and destroy Leviathan, that is striking at Satan. And therefore, this, these beast powers will be destroyed by Christ and this great sword. The, the sword is sort of a theme with Christ as this uh, Lord of hosts, this warrior. And he says here in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 41, If I whet my glittering sword. So he's a warrior. And we know he's coming to do battle and, and on behalf of Judah. To, to free Judah and Israel. Uh, if he wets, and to wet is to uh, take a stone uh, with water and to sharpen the edge of these tools, these sword, so that you can do damage. So, so Christ is a warrior. And he says, if I sharpen my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, then what will happen? I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. And so this goes all the way back to Torah. And this is the way we have to think. That, that Satan is animating and activating hatred against Christ. And so Christ has enemies. And he's coming to render vengeance to these enemies. That, that's the theme of the Bible. That, that if you, not you, but if one takes exception to God's plan for mankind through Israel and, and fights against Israel, you're actually fighting against the Lord. And so he identifies through Torah that the enemies of Israel are his enemies and uh, through Torah and through the prophets. So back to Isaiah 27 and verse 2. So he's coming with his sword to do this. In that day, sing you unto her. What, what, what should we sing? What's the song that God wants sung in the end time? A vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. So we see the contrast between Leviathan and the fate of Leviathan and the vineyard. And when Leviathan is put down, then we see... So Leviathan is, is uh, antithetical to Christ. It's, it's the, 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 uh, the villain, the, the antagonist that's working against the plan of God. And when that antagonist is put down, there is now no opposition to the Lord's will. So, so when that antagonist is put down, well, then what is the Lord's will? Hey, sing this song, a vineyard of red wine, and the Lord keeps it. He looks after this vineyard and he will water it every moment. You, you get a sense of the intimacy, the compassion and the passion that God has when he says, you know, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is his zeal. This, this is what's uppermost in his mind. He's going to water this vineyard every moment. It's such care and compassion. Lest any hurt it, he will protect it and guard it night and day. That when he comes, there will be no harm, even though there will be, after a thousand years, there's still going to be a push and an, an attempt to destroy the vineyard. God is protecting it, and he will rain down fire from heaven, because now he's protecting this vineyard. Now, we've heard this metaphor of the vineyard before, earlier in Isaiah, except it was very different in chapter 5. Here in chapter 27, God loves the vineyard. It, it's a productive vineyard. It's, 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 it's producing wine for him. And he's protecting it and keeping it. And he's watering it all the time and just 
making sure that all the grapes are looked after and that he can harvest the grapes and have the wine and nobody can harm this vineyard. That's very, very different from the same vineyard in chapter five. And we'll just really, you know, go back in the archive. We did this uh, in detail, but let's just read it just to, to have the contrast. Chapter five, verse one. Now will I sing to my well-beloved, so the prophet is singing to God, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. So there's an expectation. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth poisonous grapes. Poisonous grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I beg you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard? What, what would you suggest that I didn't do, that I should have done to save this vineyard and make it productive? What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Therefore, when I look that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth poisonous grapes, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, the protection. And it shall be eaten up, break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. God, God is doing this. God is orchestrating this. And these are his people. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So this curse is definitely coming from God. Nobody can argue this. If, if there's just a, a drought and there's no water coming from the heavens, then clearly God is against this vineyard. Then he explains, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And that has never changed. From the very beginning, God established Israel as his vineyard. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. So God has an expectation of judgment according to Torah. And that's what he's looking for from the vineyard. We are first fruits. Even if we are Gentiles, we are now grafted into Judah. We are spiritual Jews and we are the first fruits. And the expectation is the same. God wants judgment according to Torah and not the support of oppression. We must have the view of Torah. So he's looking for this, but instead he gets oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. So a cry of the victims. So he wants righteousness in the, in, in the land, but instead of righteousness, there's oppression and the victims are crying out. And God's like, what, what is this? This is my vineyard. So it was a very, very different treatment of the vineyard in chapter 5 than in chapter 27. And chapter 5 gives us a sense of the extent of the evil of these people. It's not just chapter 5. We'd have to read you know, the whole scroll of Isaiah to, to really understand that the depth of depravity of these people. The depravity notwithstanding, because they're his people. This is his vineyard. And so when he removes the protection of the vineyard and allows the vineyard to be destroyed, it's not so that the vineyard will be completely destroyed, never to produce again. It's so that the vineyard can actually be harvested. And that's what we see here in chapter 27, where now he has a different song for the vineyard. And we're to sing this song and, and, and rejoice over Judah and Jerusalem because God is now rejoicing over her and the rest of Israel. Back to chapter 27 and verse 4. So we're coming from chapter 5 to see the anger, the disappointment that God had with Judah. And now he says in chapter 27 and verse 4, Fury is not in me. So the anger is gone. 
who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? And we saw the briars and thorns in chapter 5. So these are the people of God who have become his enemies. God is saying, like, what is this? Who, who would do this? Who, who would want to fight me of my own people? I would go through them. I would burn them together. So that's the destruction that awaits them. However, he says in verse 5, or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. And this is what Christ said to them. You won't see me again until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this curse is upon you, but it doesn't have to end this way. So, so God is driving this destruction to Judah to drive them to repentance. And this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 30, to Torah. So you can be destroyed. So verse 4 is, hey, you want to you want to do battle with me? Okay, I'll, I'll the, the wicked will be ashes under the feet of the righteous. So that's one option. That's option A. How about option B? Take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. So this is like he reinforces it. You you don't have to you don't have to be destroyed. You you can have peace with me. You can have reconciliation. How and why? Because of the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. That it's through the sacrifice of Christ, Israel can have peace with God. Judah can have peace with God. And ultimately, the world will have this opportunity. So here's your choice. Be destroyed or have peace with God. Be in atonement, in atonement with God. Here he says, this is what he will do. And again, we can spend, we, we don't have enough time to articulate the evil, the wickedness, the depravity of the Jews and of the Israelite nations. It's just, we, there's, not, there's, not, there's not enough time to articulate all of this. So yes, let's agree. God's people are wicked. Now that we've agreed, so we don't need to argue over that, let's also agree that they are God's people. And God has designed a plan where his covenant people are, are the front end after Christ of that plan. And we are grafted in to this front end. We are the front of the front end. But, but this is what God is doing. And we can't understand what's happening in the earth without this narrative. That Jacob, the time of Jacob is upon us. It's going to be a great tribulation upon Jacob. Not to end Jacob, but to purge Jacob. The tribes of Israel. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Satan thought he was getting his way, that the, the, the puppets of Satan thought they were getting their way. God was actually having his way. And his cause then is to cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud. And Israel here doesn't mean the small nation of Israel in the Middle East. That's that's the tribe of Judah or the southern kingdom, Judah, Benjamin, a bit of Levi, maybe a bit of Simeon there. But Israel means all 12 tribes. These are the tribes of Israel, Jacob. So this is not just the little nation of Israel, but all the tribes of Israel shall blossom and bud. This is the future. Not the immediate future, because in the immediate future, there's, there's great tribulation, and that's what we see happening now. It's the setup for this great tribulation. But the ultimate future, is that Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. This is the, this is the purpose of the vineyard. This is why God is, has such this love and this compassion and this careful attention to the vineyard so that it can fill the face of the world with fruit. That righteousness will ultimately cover the whole earth, but it's going to emanate from and come from Israel. Has he smitten him? as he smote those that smote him. So it's a little bit awkward, but he's saying, so who are those that smote? So him is Israel. And has God stricken Israel the way he has stricken those who struck Israel? So Babylon, uh, Assyria, these are the Edom. These are the enemies of Israel. And if we go back to Torah, Moses told us that you will be stricken by your enemies. But once you repent, then all these curses that came upon you, they will come upon your enemies. And God is saying here, yes, 
my vineyard, I had to destroy my vineyard. But once I get the fruit I'm looking for, I'm then going to turn my attention on these Gentile nations. And they are going to experience the full wrath, my, my extreme wrath. And it's going to be far worse than what I subjected Israel to. Because I was kind of um, mitigating the full wrath with Israel because I was driving them to repentance. But now that I have that repentance, I have that remnant, that faithful remnant, now I'm going to punish the wicked. And it's going to be unmitigated. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain? Is Israel slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? So, so again, this, just emphasizing that God is going to slay the wicked. He's going to slay the Gentile wicked. And, and, and in a way, that's far worse than what happens to Israel. Because he's, his, his purpose is rooted in Israel. In measure, when it shoots forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stays his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Again, kind of awkward poetry here. But God is doing all the punishment of Israel in a measured way. And, and it's going to be hard for us to fully digest. But he's going to control the rough wind in the day of the east wind. So when this calamity comes, it, it's not completely without any control. God is controlling it because what he's looking for is the repentance of the remnant. By this, therefore, because of this operation of the Lord, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. That's what's happening. So we cannot get discouraged to, to think that all of this chaos in the earth, that there's no meaning to it. We cannot get discouraged to see when our nations, or those of us who I'm speaking to who are in the, the Western nations, they're the Judeo-Christian nations, uh, when we see these nations being overtaken and, and the Judeo-Christian values going out the window and being overtaken by bizarre, perverse notions of virtue, uh, we need to understand that all of this has a purpose. And ultimately, Jacob will take root and bear fruit. By this, therefore, by through all of this operation, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. That's what's happening. That's what the purpose of the Great Tribulation is. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. That's what God is doing. When he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, so beaten up these stones, the groves and images shall not stand up. So all of this is this, this destruction and this um, punishment so that God can, can harvest Jacob. And, and let's just quickly read Micah, where there's this pattern, and it's throughout the prophets, but we constantly see this pattern of destruction followed by redemption. In fact, the, the destruction leads to the redemption. And that's how Isaiah, just you just have to read Isaiah chapters 1 and 2, you got the whole story. The, the, these people that God has nurtured who rebel against him and he's going to destroy them. And then suddenly the whole world is coming to them to learn righteousness. There's the story. And the, the other prophets repeat the same thing. And, and, and it's not really from Isaiah, it's from Moses. All the prophets are repeating and amplifying Moses. So here, Micah as an example, he says, But truly I am full of the power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment. That's what God wants and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So, so God, he's not holding back. They need to know their transgression. They need to know their sin. So they know what they need to repent of. Hear this, verse 9, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob, you princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. So when God says here through Micah that they abhor judgment, it doesn't mean that they're not making judgments. It doesn't mean that they're not making their opinions known and they're doing some form of justice and they feel good about their justice. It's that they abhor judgment according to Torah. They hate it. It's too harsh. And, and Micah is just saying, you are the leaders. You need to lead the people to Torah. But you abhor Torah. And you pervert all equity. So it's all this kind of crazy, bizarre sense of virtue and justice. 
they build up Zion. So they're building up Zion, but they do it with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So they feel good about themselves. They know they're the people of God. They're building up Zion as the people of God, but they have departed from God. And so they have every reason to seduce themselves and to be deluded into thinking, yeah, we're God's people. Look, we're building up Zion, but they're doing it in the wrong way. They're not doing it with God. The heads thereof judge for reward. They don't just speak plainly. They don't just give the judgment the way it should be. They give the judgment for the right reaction. Hey, if I judge like this, will you like me? And if I judge like this, will you pay me? And can we work it out? So the judgment depends on what I can get versus this is the judgment according to Torah. And, you know, some people might hate it. Oh, well, this is what the judgment should be. The heads thereof judge for reward and the priests thereof teach for hire, even the priests and the prophets thereof, even the prophets divine for money. So everybody's in it for their own gain. And how, how does this make me look? How does this make me feel? Am, am, I, am I aggrandizing myself? Am I enriching myself? Versus the will of the Lord. Yet, in all of this, they will lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? Wow. In all of this, but the prophet is like alarmed, like, wow. In all of this, yet, they will lean upon the Lord and they'll use righteous language and say, isn't the Lord among us? No evil can come upon us because we're the people of God. Therefore, shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field. The wicked are going to have their way with Zion. This is, some, this is a, an outcome that they cannot remotely imagine. Because they're building up Zion, and they're the people of God. And the Lord is among us. For sure, certainly the Lord is here. And Micah's saying, specifically for you, Zion will be plowed as a field. And Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. And then immediately after this destruction, just like Isaiah, just as Moses prophesied, he says, but in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people, Gentile people, shall flow unto it. So just like Isaiah, just like really Moses, all the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them see this, that God's people are wicked. They're really deranged and deluded and unrighteous, even though they think they're righteous. And for that, they have to be punished. This vineyard has to be plowed. But the purpose of plowing the vineyard is not to completely wipe it out. It's to turn it. And once it turns to the Lord, then God is going to carry on with his plan from the beginning. He's going to establish them as a kingdom of priests that the whole world can come to. And so here people are finally going to flow to Zion. And God is not going to be in Zion by himself. He's going to be in Zion with the first fruits and with Judah and the tribes of Israel. And the people are, the people are going to come to these human beings while God beings are going to be overseeing this whole operation. Back to Isaiah chapter 27. Yet, uh, this is what Isaiah is seeing now. So he sees this glory uh, of this vineyard, but that he still says, yet the defensed city shall be desolate and the habitation forsaken. So he's seeing the whole picture. He sees the, the future, the ultimate future, but he also sees the immediate future. And he, he's able to digest the immediate future because he sees the ultimate future. And I think for, for some of us who maybe get a bit discouraged when, when we're hearing what the immediate future holds, maybe we just need to dive into the prophets and see the ultimate future and see how one leads to the other. So Isaiah was able to digest this. Yep, the defense city shall be desolate. This is the abomination that makes desolate. But that desolation is when the blindness will be lifted from God's people. So it's not a complete end. Yet the defense city shall be desolate and the habitation forsaken 
and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. So just the sense of complete destruction and the wild animals come and they're just, it's not a glorious city anymore. It's not a, a thriving metropolis, it's just wiped out. And you have the, the, the animals coming through and almost scavenging with what they can eat. When the bows thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them. This is what Christ said. This is the, the abomination that makes desolate. And he that formed them will show them no favor. That's the immediate future. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and you shall be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So there's this great destruction. And then earlier Isaiah spoke of um, Israel like an olive tree where it has to be beaten to, 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 to break down whatever, bring down whatever olives are left. Uh, so all of this process is about harvesting the remnant. And so it's going to come to pass that God is going to be harvesting the remnant. But, but Isaiah is very careful to say here that in this process of destruction, God is looking for a remnant to turn to him. But it's not this sort of wholesale, let's just gather everybody. He's going to gather one by one. This implies a real relationship that each one has to have with Christ. So although this is destruction upon them, it's not ultimate destruction, as long as each one will turn to God. And that's what he's looking for, the ones that will turn. So they're going to be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And it shall come to pass again in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria that's the north and the outcasts in the land of Egypt that's the south so this is the the time of the king of the north and the south and these people have been taken captive and they were about to perish and then the trumpet blew this is really um, what should bring to mind Matthew 24 where Christ said except those days be shortened no flesh should be saved alive. And he was speaking specifically of Jerusalem and of the promised land and his people, that, that these nations are going to surround them and they're going to be set to completely destroy them, take them slaves, completely remove them from the land. And it's going to be a complete destruction if Satan has his way. But then God is going to shorten it and he's going to come and save his people. And he's going to gather them from all over the earth and bring them back to the promised land. And so in that day, the trumpet, this is the Feast of Trumpets, the great trumpet will be blown, announcing the return of Christ. And then the angels are going to gather them, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt. And when he gathers them, what, shall, what will they do? And they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So the prophets are very, very consistent. Uh, Isaiah is very, very consistent. He doesn't hold any punches. But at the same time, he also understands the ultimate future. Uh, where is all of this heading? Uh, we need to be very, very clear and very Jerusalem focused. Our future is in Jerusalem. So we need to be very, very focused on Jerusalem. And a lot of Christians, if you stop and talk to them, they couldn't care less about Jerusalem. It's the last thing on their mind. It's the first thing on God's mind. And it needs to be the first thing on our mind because the whole world centers on Jerusalem. So that is Isaiah chapter 27. I hope that you've enjoyed what we've covered so far. We're not far uh, from finishing. I, first, Isaiah only has 39, only, but has 39 chapters. So we only have, uh, you know, 27, we, we have about 12 more chapters to go. And uh, some of these chapters are short. So we might get through this um, by the end of the year, God will. So let, and then we'll go back to Psalms. So let me check now the um, chat and see if there are any questions. I don't see any questions right now, but I did see uh, last week a comment that is kind of a question that I want to uh, comment on. I appreciate that. The comment said, I spent a little bit of time last week um, 
speaking about George Floyd. And that came from a passage in chapter 26, where Isaiah said, let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. So this was the assessment of the prophet, that you can go ahead and show favor to the wicked, but if their heart is fully set in them to do evil, that's what they'll do. And, and that's what Isaiah said. And part of that, I was talking about uh, so the social justice warriors. And we need to be careful that we judge righteous, righteously and not, not this um, social justice, which is really, um, we're being manipulated and being played. So there was a comment then afterwards that said, Mr. George Floyd was not called by God, as well as others in the sage, meaning others in the sage are not called by God. However, his life still matters and the church needs to have compassion because in the sequence of prophecy, the church of God is next. So appreciate the comment. And I just want to unpack it a bit. Uh, first of all, I'll say what I agree with, and then I'll say what I respectfully uh, disagree with. So the church needs to have compassion. I, I think that's a fair statement. I, I would agree with that. We, the church should have compassion. Um, yeah, I would not uh, disagree with what do I what do I disagree with? Um, so first of all, the signal right off the bat. So Mr. George Floyd, um, clearly, let's have respect for George Floyd, Mr. George Floyd. Uh, as a minister of God, I can tell you there are brethren who would die first before they call a minister Mister. <laughs> you know, and maybe it's from you know some past uh, history, uh, but they would never say Mr. Adrian Davis or Pastor Adrian or it's just Hey, yo, Adrian. Um, so there's a respect here that's being shown to George Floyd which is fine, uh, we should pray for all men, um, and we want to have respect. But some, I would say some people, and not this, not this brother, this is a very good attitude I see here, but I'll tell you, I've come across brethren who would clearly give respect to George Floyd long before they give respect to the ministry. Uh, so this is one, one thing, we want to be careful that we're not virtue signaling. So we want to speak plainly. And Christians have lost ground, lost significant ground. We've given ground to the devil because of political correctness and, and virtue signaling. So the devil has trained us that if you want to get on in this world, you have to virtue signal. You need to show us that you're on board with the agenda. And so, and people are virtue signaling everywhere. I'm a good person. Let me virtue signal. Well, I'm not a good person and I'm not here to virtue signal. And I'm not here to convince anybody that I'm a good person. I'd rather convince you the opposite, that in, in, in me is no good thing. I don't need to virtue signal because I understand the human heart and the human condition. What I want to do is I want to Christ signal. I want, I want to show Christ's will. I want to read the prophets and understand the prophets and understand the law and show what Christ's mind is on any matter. So, so when I speak, I'm trying to portray what the prophets are thinking and speaking and teaching. And I know that that's gonna fly in the face of our society. I, I know that, but I can't, I didn't write the Bible. So I'm not going to apologize for the Bible. So he was not called by God. I will agree with that. So that's something else I agree with. He was not called by God as well as many others in this age, not called by God. However, his life still matters. Well, yes and no, yes and no. So does human life matter? Yes and no. From the biblical perspective, human life should matter, but in many cases it doesn't. And Christ himself is coming. He says he's going to make man more scarce than gold. He's coming to wipe out human life. And in many ways, when we read the prophets, human life is like, it, it's actually worthless to God. And so unless humans repent and take on the image of God and receive the Holy Spirit, what we find is human life actually doesn't matter. And so does human, does, 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 does um, human life matter? The, the, the jury is out. The jury is out. Human life will matter when it is 
when we receive the Holy Spirit and God life is within us, then human life matters. Other than that, it's going to be wiped out. So let's be careful not to just automatically say every human life matters. No, there are some human lives that don't matter. Now, does George Floyd's life matter? Well, yes and no. We, we are hoping that in the resurrection, because we know he will be resurrected, and we may even have the opportunity to teach him, we are hoping that he will then, when, when everything is shown to him, and you know we don't know what his history is, but when all of that is resolved, and he's shown the way of Christ, we're certainly uh, hopeful that he will choose Christ, and then his life will really matter. It will matter eternally. But when we say, you know, we have to virtue signal, no, we've lost ground as Christians because we are not calling evil evil. George Floyd was, he's dead now, and he's awaiting the resurrection, but he was an evil man. Somebody needs to say it. It's unfortunate, but he was a wicked man. And somebody needs to have compassion for his victims. You know, to, 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 he was a pornographer. And many of these women that are caught up in pornography, they're slaves. They don't want to be there. They, they don't choose to degrade themselves. So they're, they're enslaved. And, and being a pornographer is a worshiper of Satan. That is a vile thing. To, to have a, a pistol in a, in a pregnant woman's spine and say, I will blow out your spine and I'll blow out the, the child in your, in your tummy. This is amazing. These are this is the vulnerable of society, a pregnant woman. And we see in Matthew 24 that the viciousness of Satan, if you're a Jew, a Jewess, and you're pregnant, there'll be no mercy. Because that's the viciousness of the devil. Human beings should naturally be protective of pregnant women. So, so this, is, this begs the question, what is a son of Belial? What is a son of Belial? That's one question that comes from this. The other is this statement that in the sequence of prophecy, the church of God is next. So therefore, we should judge with compassion because in the sequence of prophecy, the church of God is next. I would say that's a very slippery slope for us to go down. And just bear with me as I unpack this. And again, we just care about the Bible. We're trying to sh iron sharpens iron. Again, I appreciate this comment. It gives me some things to hopefully I can give you guys some things to reflect on as well. Ultimately, we just want to be right with Christ in a world that hates him, in a world that is manipulating minds and seducing minds to choose courses that are antichristic and antithetical to Christ. So we don't even realize that we start developing these, these certain value systems that are antichrist. That's the world we live in. So we just need to go to scripture to say, what does scripture say? Now, in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, he says, casting nations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So we should see when we see pride, when we see things exalting themselves against Christ, we're ready to cast those things down. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We want to think like Christ. It's not our natural way, and, and it's not going to agree necessarily with, with the world around us that has rejected Christ. But we don't care what the world around us thinks. We care what Christ thinks, and we're trying to conform the way we think to our understanding of how Christ thinks, which we find in the scriptures. And then he says this, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we are conforming to Christ so that we can become soldiers with Christ. We are conforming to Torah so that we can judge according to Torah. And he says, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we're not going to have this um, sense that, you know what, since I'm kind of disobedient, I'm going to be lenient on others because I want them to be lenient on me. No, we're going to force ourselves and discipline ourselves to be obedient so that when Christ gives us judgment, we will judge according to Torah without looking for reward, without looking for uh, acceptance. We're just looking for what, what, would, what would Christ do? How would he judge? And I want to talk about this again, this, this, you know, we want to be careful how we judge because 
uh, in the sequence of prophecy, the church of God is next. Judgment begins with the house of God. I think Samuel, 1 Samuel is a good example here of what we need to be careful of. In 1 Samuel 15 and verse 20, Saul, and let me just maybe share my screen here. Samuel 15 and verse 20 Saul said unto Samuel yes I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me so in his mind I've obeyed God and I've brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites so that was the instruction utterly destroy the Amalekites Saul spared the king in his mind he's fully obeyed god and yet he spared the king he destroyed the people but he spared the king why would he do that he's setting a precedent israel themselves may come under attack and if israel is captured he's setting a precedent spare the king so he's thinking of himself well i've got to judge in a way that if the judgment comes back on me I want to set a precedent, hey, you spare the king. Now, so that's one thing. We don't judge is sort of thinking, oh, um, let me be lenient here. So hopefully I can have leniency. That's that's not how we, when it comes to understanding the situation, when we're assessing a situation, we judge according to Torah. Now, we don't, we're not condemning. We know there's a resurrection. We're not condemning people to, oh, I hope this person burns in the lake of fire. We're not saying that. But we understand the wickedness that's in the earth. And people are calling evil good and calling good evil. And Christians are, have lost ground. And we're cowering in the corner. We're hiding in the closet. And perverse men have taken over. And they are, they're injecting a different moral code. And we can't go along with this. We need you to speak plainly. And people are not going to like it. But we can't apologize for the Bible. Here in chapter 2 of First Samuel, you know, George Floyd didn't know the Lord. And when we say George Floyd, there are many George Floyds. He's, he's really symbolic, and, and the elite are using him as a symbol. And they're telling us, here are your heroes. This is the best that you have. Th these are your heroes. They're not holding up Martin Luther Kings and saying, look at these honorable men. Look at these people who, who strove for noble goals. These are your heroes. No, we're going to take the dregs of society, and we're going to hold them up as your heroes. This is, this is to, to get your children to look to these people as heroes. Well, no, this is a son of Belial, or he was a son of Belial. And I say that with all, like, this is, this is just fact. He, he was a son of Belial. He will have his chance, and we may even have the chance to educate him, or certainly others like him will. But that's going to come in the second resurrection. But we have to be able to assess what's the situation today. And here, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They didn't know the Lord. It, it's not that, well, they didn't know the Lord, therefore we have to say, well, they're, they're nice people. They didn't know they didn't know the Lord, and they were sons of Belial. That's why they were sons of Belial, because they didn't know the Lord. Now, they were wiped out. Is that the end of them? No, they're going to come up in the resurrection. And they will have the chance to be educated properly. And we hope that they will choose the right path. But they didn't know the Lord, and therefore they were sons of Belial. So just because somebody doesn't know the Lord doesn't mean that, hey, you can't say anything about them. No, they didn't know the Lord. They were sons of Belial. In verse 22, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is what sons of Belial do. So you can't now come and tell me that the children of Eli, the sons of Eli, these are my heroes. These are the people that I have to defend. These are the people that I should train my children. Look to the sons of Eli. And they, they didn't know the Lord, but hey, this, these are good people. And no, they were sons of Belial. So there's a term in the Bible, and we, can, we could search it. It's reused repeatedly, sons of Belial. So who, who, who are these sons of Belial? Is this a term that we can use today? Or is it, is it forbidden? Nobody can be a son of Belial. This, this doesn't mean that they're not going to be resurrected. Here... In Psalm 137, we will get here, and many Christians don't know how to answer this, and, and many Muslims that hear them in the debates, they point to this to say, what is this? 
Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, that's the future, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, blessed shall he be that rewards you as you have served us. Blessed shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. This is like, what? what? But this is David's heart. He is seeing the people of Israel, the children of Israel, destroyed. He's seeing the vulnerable, the babies, being destroyed. And he is just beside himself with compassion for the victims. And he's saying, to, he's saying like, the one that comes and deals with Babylon, the way that Babylon dealt with us, that one will be blessed. And that one ultimately is Christ. But Christ is going to give his people power. And he's going to empower them to fight back. But this is, this is hard to digest. But this is the will of the Lord. That the wicked will be destroyed. And so we need to be able to call out wickedness. And then we, we pray for the best. But wickedness is wickedness. And God is coming to judge wickedness. And we could say, well, God just doesn't have any compassion. And th people use this verse to say, God is this, this God of the Bible is evil. He has no compassion. And we could even look at Matthew 8 to say again, Christ could be accused of having no compassion. He says, and another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. That's what, I'd like to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Does Christ have no compassion? I mean, I just want to bury my father. No, let the dead bury their dead. And yet this Christ is the orchestrator of the plan of God. It is through Christ that these dead have hope. And yet he says to his disciples, you, you better have your priorities straight. So let's be careful. We're in a time of manipulation. We're in a time of brainwashing. We're in a time of removing the Christian value system from society. So we just need to be careful that we are not being manipulated. And we, we find ourselves being coward and we can't speak plainly. We can't speak according to the Bible. So I want to just read the Bible and I just want to be true to the Bible. And I'm not here, I'm, I'm not running a popularity contest. I'm not hoping I say all the right things and then I get a pat on the head and people like me. I'm not here to be liked. I, I hope I'm respected. I hope I'm doing something of value, but I, I feel my mission is to teach the Bible. And we're gonna go through it line by line and I'm just gonna teach what the Bible says. And so Isaiah calls out the wicked and says, you can go ahead and give them your social justice. They won't change. And we're living in a time now where George Floyd, and again, he's one man, he's dead now, and he's gonna be in the resurrection. And we really do pray that we see him and all of his potential realized. And, and he will be the image of God as he was intended to be. That's our hope for George Floyd. But George Floyd still lives today. There are many George Floyds and they're being let out of prison. And lawlessness is abounding. And we're gonna find ourselves very soon in a position where these George Floyds are going to touch us personally. And they're going to touch our loved ones personally. And it's not gonna be this academic thing anymore. It's gonna be where we have suffered at the hands of these people. And it's no longer academic, it's real. And so we have to have this biblical view that is consistent. That it doesn't matter whether it happens to us personally or it's a small baby that is destroyed, or it's a, a small child that is raped, or it's a woman that is abused. It's the vulnerable of society. We don't have to be the victim to feel compassion for the victims and to feel this, this sigh and cry for the wickedness that's done in the earth. It doesn't have to touch us personally before we wake up and say, this is wrong and, and I mean, these, these are wicked people. No, we have the compassion in the right place, according to Torah. So I'm not saying that, you know, I hate George Floyd and, you know, I'm glad he's gone. I'm not saying that at all. I know the plan of God and I know he'll be resurrected. And there's gonna be very powerful people all around him that have more power than he ever thought he had. 
and he's going to have to choose. Does he go the way of Christ or does he continue in this incorrigible uh, attitude? So that's George Floyd. And we, we hope the best for him. But George Floyd is everywhere. And the elite are releasing George Floyd into society. And, and we have to be able to just call a spade a spade and speak according to Torah. So that's that's my position there. I hope it's clear. I hope I, I hope it's uh, understood. I appreciate where the brother was coming from that shared that, and I think he made some good points. I just need we, we need to be careful. We're, we're being manipulated into a value system that doesn't come from the Bible. Let me just see if uh, very very good. Yeah, very good, uh, Sister Velma. Uh, Jesus said, "Why are you calling me? God, there's none good but one, and that's God." So so when we have that understanding. We don't need to virtue signal. These people who have, people around us who have departed from Christianity and departed from Christian values, they have to constantly virtue signal because they have this anxiety that they're not good people. And so they're trying to do everything they can to prove that they're good people. We don't suffer from that anxiety. We know we're not good people. There's nothing good in us. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're being transformed and we're conforming to Christ. So I think that's great. Oh, uh, where do we post your questions? Right there, Alan. <laughs> right, right where you're posting it. You can post it right there. Uh, well, but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. Well, wow. Sister Velma is just right, right on this. Very, very good. I think that is it for tonight. Um, we just we live in a we live in very difficult times, brethren. Let's pray for each other. Let's look out for each other. Iron sharpens iron. I don't have all the answers. Uh, I don't think you think you have all the answers either. The Bible has all the answers and we just have to mine it and work through it and uh, iron sharpening iron. And we'll get there in the end. Uh, we, we know we'll get there in the end. We just have to have patience with each other and, uh, and look out for each other and pray for each other. These are very, very difficult times. The immediate future is very, very difficult. So let's keep our eyes through the immediate future to the ultimate future. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, brethren, for uh, staying with me up to chapter 27. As I mentioned, we'll just take a, a small break now, and then God willing, in September, we'll resume with uh, Isaiah chapter 28. God bless you, brethren. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Amen.